Hello, and welcome to Reflections with Raja, a podcast about finding purpose, storytelling, and navigating life. My name is Raja Butcher, and I use they, them pronouns. Join me on this weekly journey as I talk to incredible people living thoughtfully each day. I am so excited about my guest today, Mia Yamamoto, who's a civil rights activist, lawyer, and just all-around badass, is someone that I have looked up to for quite a long time, and I've had the pleasure to get to know her during my time in LA, and really just honored that she's taking time to be here. Um, And to be honest with you all, we've had a couple of um, audio issues on my end, and so I'm just so grateful that she's willing to come back and, and help make this recording happen. Welcome to the show, Mia. How are you? Great, great. Thank you for inviting me to your program. It's great to be talking to you. Thank you. Um, I'm just so excited about the conversations that we're going to have and the work that you're doing. Um, so let's get started. Uh, I want to quickly just, uh, as you know, you've, you've seen some of the questions before, uh, but tell yeah. me a little about you. What's your story, Mia? Well, I was born in a uh, World War II concentration camp in Arizona. Uh, where they kept the Japanese-Americans during World War II. Right. So a beginning which is um, that auspicious <laughs> was bound to have uh, an arc or a trajectory in terms of propelling my life in the direction it's gone. Um, I think that's probably why I became a lawyer. It's probably why I became an activist. Um, uh, I don't know where I attribute those things to, but uh, at, at least the origins are at least attributable to some of the places that I've gone and the directions I've taken. Sure. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I've always been touched at how authentic and open you've always been about, you know, pretty being born in a concentration camp and, and the experiences of Japanese Americans within the U S and the ways these concentration camps impacted generations upon generations of people. Um, and then also how that's inspired so much social activism and identity um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your coming out story, Mia, um, and kind of what it meant to be in the military and then become a lawyer and then coming out um, and, and just how you've navigated so authentically and beautifully your life. Well, it hasn't been, um, it's been an up and down process. I think every transgender person that I've ever met has had to struggle with the world Um They've always been very clear about who they are and who we are, but the world has not been very clear on what they think we should be. So that conflict is something that all trans people have come up with. So I think the road to survival has has, has not at all been, um, it, certainly not been easy, not for any uh, queer person. Um, let me just say that um, in I think the seminal moment for me certainly was flunking out of school. My first year of college, I flunked out with all Fs. And I think that was right where most queer people find the least reason to keep on, to keep on living, to keep on existing, to keep surviving. Uh, It's kind of like all this struggle and for what? Um, To try to fit into an unforgiving world. So I think that that was a seminal moment for me. I knew that um, you always had this sense of doom which you live with, which is a cloud over everything you do. Um, and, so, and so getting somehow surviving college uh, and, and getting out with a degree, um, finding a reason to keep going um, was always the, the, the pivotal moment that where you can continue on. 
Uh, and flunking out of school just meant um, I had to do very well to not only get back off probation, but to graduate. So going into the military directly after college um, was, from my point of view, the perfect culmination of doing what I thought I should do, which is go out, go to college, get that degree, and then um, maybe your family won't be that ashamed of me when they find out I'm trans. Um, but uh, the one escape route was for me, the military. So immediately after I graduated, um, there was a war going on. And I felt that um, it was a lousy, no good, terrible war. But as an American, I felt that was my duty, that was my responsibility, that when your government, when your, when your country calls you, you have to answer that call. And it's something that everybody in my family had always done. Um, my brother um, Steve had been in Korea with the Army. Um, my older brother Greg um, was a, um, in the Air Force, and my brother Lawrence was in the Public Health Service, which actually is a form of naval um, commitment. In any event, um, I didn't really go to war expecting to survive. I didn't really, I thought it would be an honorable exit to an extraordinarily troubled life. Um, and so when I survived, that was a different, another pivotal sort of moment where I was spared somehow. Um, I now have some kind of a legacy where everybody who's been left behind, I've got to continue on. I've got to do something to, to justify my survival. Um, going to law school was, um, <laughs> going to law school after, after the army was interesting. Um, <laughs> UCLA was the only school that asked me why I wanted to go to school, why I wanted to be a lawyer. I remember wow. distinctly, I actually wrote them, I figured I'm not gonna get in here anyway, my, my grades are terrible. So I wrote them and said, <laughs> listen, I'm a, I am a poet and, um, all I want to do is write beautiful poetry. And I know that I'm never going to be able to make a living uh, writing beautiful poetry. So I need to become a lawyer so I can have some occupation so I can support my art. I literally wrote that in there and I thought, boy, this is going to crack them up. You know? uh, incredibly enough, I was an early admit. Um, they, November of 67, they told me I would be in the class of 71. And it was almost a year away still. I was like the earliest of early admits <laughs> to the UCLA law. But anyways, I did, I did survive um, the 4th Infantry Division um, and play coup. That was, uh, a, again, another seminal uh, experience to, to serve in the American military, to feel as though you needed to do that in order to belong, to feel as though you've, you've lived up to your responsibilities as an American, and uh, you can, despite your race or your gender identity, uh, claim at least that part of your American heritage. Um, of course, none of that matters in the real world. Um, so when I went to UCLA Law School, I felt that um, this was the time we had to organize Asian American law students in order to mobilize and be a part of this civil rights movement that has been so good to all of us. To be a part of it as lawyers was in the great tradition of Thurgood Marshall um, and all the other great civil rights pioneering lawyers and judges. Uh, it was an interesting experience to organize. I think organizing students, 
something I had never done before, period, not through my uh, undergraduate years. Uh, and my only leadership uh, experiences were, you know, you know, going out on patrol in the military. Um, it's interesting to be an Asian American uh, in Vietnam um, and be a part of an American military that invaded that country. Um, your sense of identity and your recognition and your realization what imperialism and colonization does to a country to its political system, to its military system, and particularly towards the natural resources of that country, the farmers and um, other people that exist in the infrastructure, and they are part of the, the smaller units of the economy that are completely unrecognized uh, until you're living right there with them. So that part of everything, uh, I think, elevated my awareness. And maybe, maybe it was part of why I didn't um, just check out like a lot of queer people, you're looking for a way out of this life because it's just too painful. Um, and the army didn't do that for me. The Vietnam War, they put me behind a desk. Um, it was very, very little risk while I was there. So I survived and, and uh, I was actually grateful for that. I felt that um, now I got to do something. And um, so organizing the law students was this is something that we did. It was something that we needed to do. And I felt like, you know, I'd never done that before. And so, you know, gathering up people and saying, hey, dude, are you Asian American? <laughs> we had our own struggles in those days. But the main thing is that we, we persevered um, and we kept going. And, and that's always been what I did uh, as a lawyer is organize around communities of color um, for inclusion in order to address and deal with and maybe remedy some of the wrongs that have been done to communities of color, poverty-stricken communities, and others who are the disfavored and dispossessed uh, of our American society, um, it seems that that is what is what given to lawyers. And it seems that if you want to live up to some noble purpose, you have to give of yourself and you have to sacrifice for people that uh, don't have your advantage and your privilege. So. What we do um, for money will support us. <laughs> what we do for free will define sure. us. Sure. Yeah. That's really, thank you. That's beautiful. Um, I've always appreciated the way you, you blend kind of your story into the larger movement and the way you've shown up in different spaces. And I know we got connected because we were lucky enough to have you as the keynote speaker for one of our lavender graduations at UCLA when I was at the center. Um, <laughs> I remember just being, I mean, we had connected before then, but like that was really the moment where I feel like I got to know you a little bit more. And I feel like I got to say, oh yeah, I know Mia. And I got to, and to see just, you, I think you one, one of my top time, all time favorite speeches at any of the lavender grads, just because I think people just kept, <laughs> so moved by your story and and your approach to life and the way you continue to do the work and show up in spaces that are necessary right i think you know we've mm -hmm. talked a bit past about the black lives matter movement and your engagement with that and some of these other places and what does it mean to continue to show up after a lifetime of activism um, yeah. so I, my question for you <laughs> is what would you say is um your gift to the world i think that the, the condition of being a transgender woman 
is the greatest gift I have to give to the world. Uh, what I thought was the curse that had doomed me to a lifetime of exclusion and uh, oppression has turned out to be the one element that I'm able to contribute to the betterment of queer history and our future. I feel like what was given to me and which didn't kill me has allowed me to flourish in the world and to provide a message which I think helps all those um, who are different for whatever reason, traditionally excluded for being different um, is a theme and a process which I think historically matters. If there's anything that I can give um, in that regard, I feel like, yeah, that's, that's the best thing I can give. <clears throat> Apart from what small things I do for the individuals I help, <clears throat> the importance of showing up and being open and notorious as an Asian American transgender woman is, um, is as important, uh, if not the most important uh, thing I do. Um, you know, I think one thing that you said earlier that really struck a point with me is, you know, your reason for going to college and feel like you had to perform and you had to go to the, like, there's something particular around queer people and queer people of color that I find that we often feel the need to overachieve in so many, particularly academically, um, as a way to demonstrate, particularly to our families, you know, and to kind of remove the shame of being queer, being trans, et cetera. And particularly as people of color and the layers of that. I think absolutely overachievement, you're right, is a theme that runs through queer uh, society and through every strain of the LGBTQ community that at some point the need to prove oneself, right. to go above and beyond your peers, to go above and beyond even those who have achieved great levels of excellence becomes an obsession. The idea that you don't belong and that you yourself don't really believe in yourself until you overachieve, that you can put certain aspects of your self-doubt and your self-loathing to rest and put it yeah, quieted yeah. and say that I can go on with my life. I've reached level X. I have overachieved in that direction. Nobody can question that level of achievement because it speaks for itself. But it always is in response to a dissatisfaction we have for some level or element of our authenticity. And because you are fighting against yourself, the struggle is even more painful because it is really a rebellion against your, your nature. I look at a lot of male to female transgender who felt their whole lives, and I think I was there too, that your masculinity was so much in doubt by not just you, but by the world, that you felt that you had to prove it by fighting, by sports, or any other form of achievement or excellence, especially physical, that could fend off the criticisms and the, the questions that people would be rising, raising around you for a lifetime. So mm. overachievement, I think you've hit it right on the head, is another element of somebody fighting against their own nature. Yeah, thank you. I, I really appreciate that you framed that as well. Um, 
So given all the things that are happening in the world and so many different social movements and injustices that I think are getting even more visible and obvious than they have been before, um, what's something that we can all do to make this world better? You know, I think that the, what's going on right now, the most important thing that Americans can do, I think, is make sure that we register to vote, that we campaign, and that we get rid of the fascists in government, especially the fascist in chief in the White House. I think people need to recognize that the future of all of us, and I'm not just talking about the LGBT community, I'm talking about all minority communities, all traditionally disempowered communities need to be unified against the threat that is facing us in November. I think the most important thing we can do right now is to empower our fellow Americans to vote, to inform them and to educate them, and to let them know that their collective power can change this country, can change the world. We have seen a little tiny movement. It called itself Black Lives Matter. It rose up in the wake of the murder of Trayvon Martin. It has grown and has been ignited to the point where you hear that slogan, that saying, you hear Black Lives Matter across the world. You hear it in Seoul, Korea, in Japan. You hear it in Europe. You hear it all over the world. And it reflects anti-Black racism, not just in America, but all over the world. It is an awareness, it is a campaign, and it's a crusade for equality that is where everybody needs to be right now. We need to actually stand up and say, for these people that have been treated this badly and this wrongfully and this unjustly for all this time, we all stand up to recognize we refuse to turn away and pretend that it doesn't exist. We refuse to somehow say that everything is okay. It is not okay. And anybody who says that police brutality against unarmed black people is not a problem in this country, they have their head in the sand and they can't see around them because they are being deliberately stupid. And so, I will call them out because there's an element out there that's just so dissatisfied with everything that their anarchism has led to the narcissist in the White House. And I believe that it is that lack of engagement or self-righteous denial uh, that has led us to where we are. If there's any message at all that is worldwide, then Black Lives Matter is what the most important single campaign that's going on right now. We have to seize the moment of awareness. People are alert. They are being educated. They are looking hard at themselves. What can we do to make this a movement that will be as encompassing as Martin Luther King trying to cross that bridge? Make it something that's gonna be that revolutionary so that really, we really embrace that this racist country, along with many other racist countries, have been inflicting injustice, and we know how to stop it, and we know how to remedy it. And I think that the campaign for reparations, extraordinarily important, 
to challenge our governments, their history, and their response to the injustice that has led to the conditions that exist today. So I think that that those two things, the election that's coming could not be more important at this point in history for not just us, but the world. And also this movement for racial equity that is rising, thanks to Patrice, Molina, the great leaders of Black Lives Matter. I pay tribute to them and call them out for their great achievement, for this level of awareness that is challenging this world right now. I thank them for that. And I have believed that this movement, this Black Lives Matter, is where Martin Luther King would be if he were alive today. He would be leading these movements. He would be blocking intersections and walking on the freeway. He would be getting arrested with Black Lives Matter because this movement is still in the vanguard for racial and social justice in America, still the most important crusade. And so if I can leave you with one thing, I will say this, all lives will not matter until Black Lives Matter. That ain't happened yet, but it needs to happen now. Yeah, amen to that. Thank you so much. I, I always appreciate hearing how powerfully and thoughtfully you speak about just the need for both our own ability to use elections, even when they're trying to be subverted by those in power, um, and also particularly the need for justice and advocacy around Black Lives Matter and and the fact that, like you said, all lives don't matter until Black Lives Matter, and that that's, those are not antithetical concepts. Um, but in fact, if all if you actually believe that all lives matter, then you would support the Black Lives Matter movement. And I, w I would say, you know, in addition to MLK, I feel like Jesus Christ and all the other folks that people use as justifications for racial disparities actually would be on this would be fighting alongside with the advocates that are fighting, particularly Black queer women and Black women that are leading the fight for justice in this country. So I so appreciate naming all that. Um, in just doing this work, particularly given the fact that we have multiple pandemics happening in the world, um, how do you ground yourself? What nourishes you? Well, yeah, obviously, I love the arts. I mean, I'm a total nut for music. And so I've been playing, playing a lot of music in the meantime, so to speak. Um, but my work goes on. So that still nurtures me. I still have clients who need my help. I think that doing that work as well as I can is the greatest blessing I have. I'm able to help people. Um, I mean, I'm able to get people through terrible struggles. And I feel like um, that elevates me every day in some fashion in terms of my own humanity. So being a, a criminal offense attorney really is very satisfying. Being a civil rights plaintiff's attorney is extraordinarily satisfying. It puts me in contact with the best people and it puts me in conflict with the government at virtually every level. And that's something I was born to be, <laughs> probably. So I, I do appreciate these opportunities that I have to use whatever talents I've got, whatever gifts I have for the causes and the people that I, that I choose. And that nurtures me a lot. I think that I do 
uh, like you, I do a lot of writing. Um, I do a lot of, um, I guess, I think I think you would call it, you know, essaying on issues um, that I think are important to me, and um, that process has always been uh, really satisfying in the sense that um, I do believe that the art of writing is the art of thinking, and so it allows me to mull through and challenge my own concepts um, uh, verbally. Mm. So doing that, writing, writing stuff, writing songs, playing music. Uh, the one thing I do miss is collaborating with my other fellow musicians. That's something we're all, that's why I was talking to you about this platform. But that nurtures me, the, the, the movements that I'm involved in still, even in the midst of the pandemic, and we try to mask up, socially distance, and wash up and, and try to use hand sanitizers. But it is important to stay engaged, involved. Uh, there's a lot of protests going on right now. The, the governmental repression that's being inflicted on our communities by the federal government have provoked a response from the community. And those um, parts of conflict, I have to be a necessary part of. Um, Kim is um, the coordinator of the legal observers for the National Warriors Guild. And um, they're pretty much engaged in every protest uh, that goes down. Uh, here and certainly and around the country so um that part of making sure that we don't sit idly by while the federal government comes down on our on our protesters and our first amendment right to speak out is um been a blessing being there where i need to be um i've always felt that that was the great restriction of the great government jobs that it could have taken being a public defender or whatever, was that I can now pick my fights. I can go out and take the cases I want. I can I can advocate on behalf of the causes I support. Um, I have free speech, free choice. I couldn't do that as a public defender. Um, I love representing the poor. I love being a public defender. I love the company of other public defenders. They are the best people and the best lawyers in the business. Um, but independence autonomy boy that's great uh, especially when you're a queer person and uh, you don't want to be reliant upon anybody else's approval to go out and be in the world and um, take care of business survive do what you got to do um, and be your own boss sometimes that's the only choice that queer people have ever aspired to and so to achieve it uh, of course is a great blessing um, to achieve independence and autonomy on any level is um is is a welcome um a welcome form of grace so um what nurtures me okay you know the love of my wife i should say that because we're sheltering in place together and she's obviously a source of great inspiration um just celebrated our fifth anniversary uh, the other day married for five years we are the exemplar of gay marriage that obviously is destroying um, the institution of marriage out there. Um, <laughs> but uh, we're together for five years, and I think it's, it is a tribute to the Ogrefeld decision of the Supreme Court, which allowed same-sex marriage, that um, we are exemplary of a movement for gay and lesbian uh, and transgender equality, which started at Stonewall uh, or sparked at Stonewall, certainly. 
and the, the Black Cat Lounge and a bunch of other landmark places. No, we're <laughs> we are a cautionary tale. Your marriage could go just as bad as ours, just as bad. <laughs> Beware, be vigilant. <laughs> so, Mia, who inspires you and where do you get your inspiration from? Who inspires me? God, there's so many people out there, don't you think? I mean, in terms of. Yeah, in, in terms of brave and heroic figures, they are out there. There's truth tellers out there, and they are in defiance of the political uh, message, whatever that is. Um, yeah, I'm inspired by our political leaders. I'm inspired by, uh, I always have been inspired by people like Dr. Molina Abdullah, who uh, founded the Black Lives Matter Los Angeles. And who continues to show up for um, for every demonstration, for every protest, to speak out on behalf of the community, on behalf of the Black community, as a professor of, of um, ethnic studies at Cal State LA, she is the natural successor. Or I should say that the she should be leading the ethnic studies department, but she is an academic that has sacrificed pure research for activism. Like so many people in ethnic studies, the lesson we've learned is that ethnic studies is really very new. And we're still making history because a lot of our history has been erased. It's really important that the academics who actually use the information to try to make things better through protest and community activity and activism be given the credit they deserve for the changes they make in society, apart from what issues they've been allowed to study and publish in great abundance. All of that's valid, but what is more important than having a leader who actually leads, who actually inspires people to follow them, to go forward and do great things on behalf of the people that have not gotten a fair shake historically. The people that fight for for poor people, the people that fight against anti-black racism, um, they're my heroes because right now they're in the crosshairs. The right wing has targeted the leaders of Black Lives Matter. There's no question about it. And they've targeted them in the most cruel ways possible, but they are continuing. They're doxing them, swatting them. Things are happening that should not happen to people. Criminal activity against the leaders of Black Lives Matter. So seeing people hold steady in the face of that, I can tell you right now, Molina Abdullah, Dr. Abdullah is being discriminated against for the head of ethnic studies at Cal State Los Angeles because they are afraid of controversy. They always have been. They want to get somebody who's made their name by publishing as opposed to leading, activating, and inspiring. So, yeah, I see somebody who has sacrificed their career for community. I see another Colin Kaepernick. I see people that are willing to sacrifice for the common good, to give up the things that they have or could have in order to call attention to injustice in the world. They inspire me. Why would I remain silent when people like that are speaking out who have given up everything so that they could speak out on this issue and they know that it's that important that you got to give up everything? I get inspired by this. That's so, that is an incredibly selfless and idealistic and 
that that uh, yeah, that kind of thing energizes me all the time. Yeah, that's powerful. Thank you, Mia. I really appreciate that. Is there anything else you want to share before we wrap up this interview? Hmm. What do I want to share? You're hey. the best wife ever. <laughs> yes, Kim is the best <laughs> best wife wife ever. I, I'm in great appreciation and great awe of um, my beautiful wife and a happy anniversary to her and to me. I love keeping track of your history, your story. Uh, always amazing and um, always interesting, uplifting and right on the money. You know, finding out what the heart of everything is right now, going through a pandemic, going through all the changes we're going through, you know, what can we see as our as how this advances our 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 goals and our ideals uh we have this chance uh just like everybody does um to cope with and survive in the face of this so my my heart goes out to everyone um i look around at this pandemic and i think about how badly donald trump has handled this pandemic and i look at all the lives that have been lost and mm -hmm. it is impossible not to feel a great sense of sorrow at the loss of the people that we've lost, that we didn't have to lose. Um, it's just something that can overwhelm us or we can continue to keep fighting back and trying to make sure that we have a better future despite whatever we're living under right now. So I keep thinking that we know what the future is. We know what's gonna have to happen, but the future is unwritten. We have to write it. We have to make we have to make what we need happen. And the only way to do it, and it is exactly like this pandemic. We have to meet this invading enemy with a united front. We all have to wear masks, we all have to socially distance, we all have to wash hands, we have to do the things to protect each other because we care about our fellow Americans. We care about their health and their lives, and we're committed to being a common good advocate that if that means sacrificing a little bit of comfort in order to stop this pandemic then that is another thing that we should be doing so this is a public service message <laughs> you've heard it in other places but i thought i would reiterate <laughs> thank you mia for that important conversation and public service announcement at the end for everyone that's listening, thank you for being with us today. My name is Raja Butter, and this is another episode of Reflections with Raja. If you'd like to check out other episodes, go to Podbean, Amazon Music, Spotify, Apple Music, and quite a few other platforms as well. Check out the website, rajabutter.com media. And have a wonderful rest of your day.